I think so. Good to see you all. Good to be with you. God bless you. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We made it as far as uh, verse 19. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring a Bible to you. It's good to see uh, a few of our friends have come back. The Lord's brought them back and brought them back safely and we're grateful for that. And um, I just thank the Lord for Aaron. He was able to share on Wednesday for me. Some of you know, uh, not feeling well. So thank you, Jesus, for that. And uh, Aaron, thank you that the Lord used you faithfully. So this morning, we're going to be turning our attentions to really chapter, the end of chapter two and chapter three. And Paul's going to talk about a mystery. Now, it's, it's a lot different than what we understand mystery. If, it, you know, some of you are thinking, boy, I, didn't I go to a dinner with a mystery and, you know, the whole thing? No, that's not what Paul's talking about, nor what we think about in the English language of mystery. The idea of mystery within the Gospels, within specifically the New Testament, compared to the Old Testament, speaks to a spiritual understanding. You might say a supernatural spiritual understanding that comes through direct revelation from God to the believer to make something that was once uh, not seen clearly visible. And so Paul is speaking about something very, very important here. It's foundational. We, we speak about the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We speak about his work and his atoning work that he's done for you and I on the cross. We understand that the atoning work and the new nature we've been given and being born-again believers. But often we don't think, or some may not think, about all the other aspects of what Christ did when he came to reconcile the entire world to him. And one of those things is a unifying of a body of believers. See, there was Old Testament saints and there's New Testament saints, and if you just study your scripture long enough, and many of you have, and we actually have a book in the, in the bookstore uh, I had written, it's, it's about the rapture, and it goes through, and, and one of the things is what happened to the Old Testament saints before Christ, and what happens to the New Testament saints. We know that the Bible's consistent in the teaching that it's always been faith. It's never been a law that saved. It's never been works that saved. The, the, the scriptures have always been consistent through this. But there is a difference. We received a new covenant, a covenant that awaits Israel, those born-again believers, those Jews that will profess Christ. Jeremiah 31, 31 talks about that new covenant through Jesus Christ that will be given to and is offered available today as we are all partakers of it, those born-again believers. But he also speaks about, and if you read in the Gospels, about how Christ, when he came, where did he descend to? We read about Abraham's bosom. And we read about the Old Testament saints that were more or less collected, if I can say it that way, in Abraham's bosom and then brought up 
to Christ, right? Or to God, Father in heaven, I, God, Father, Christ, the Trinity, the triune God in heaven, right? But if you think about that for a minute, one of the things that we receive as New Covenant believers is his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Now, you will find places in the Old Testament, David and others, where the Saul, even Saul, first king, where the Spirit of the Lord went on the believer, but it was for a period of time, for a purpose, and then that Spirit was removed after that purpose was done. But for New Covenant believers, that's not the case, right? We know that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that. So what, what I'm explaining is there's a lot more that's going on than just the atoning work of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Another work, as I mentioned, is he came to unify. And that's what Paul's going to go through today. It's very important foundationally to our understanding. And what he's saying is that he's taken Jew and he's taken Gentile and he's brought them into one body in Christ Jesus. And it is part of that that the Gentile, who, was not, who were not the chosen people of God, we do have to recognize that. The Jewish people were God's chosen people. We cannot, be, we cannot rewrite history or be revisionists to rewrite the Bible. The Jews are the Jews, and they're God's chosen people, and God has a perfect plan and purpose. They were to be witnesses to the nations all around us, that we would all come to Christ, right? But then, if you know, Jesus came, and many rejected which is why we read about the rejection of the, the, the cornerstone, the foundational piece, that corner piece that would set and lay the foundation. And because of that, that rejection, the Jews, many of them, have not, as you know, in Israel, have not accepted Christ today. And so they practice the law, or they try to keep the ceremonial practices of the law, which we read in our Bibles and we read no one can do. No one can work their way to heaven. And so Paul, and I think this is beautiful, one of the very precious places we have in Scripture, he explains the purpose in that the promises that were promised to the Jews that were going to be given to us, not replacement theology of the church, but the promises that await God's people, okay? Because that's the best way to describe it, Jew and or Gentile, God's people, born-again believers, have been 100% given to born-again believers, to Gentiles. Now, you and I today, some of us go, yeah, I believe that. That sounds good. This was in the first century at the Church of Ephesus. This was, oh my, what is Paul saying? And not only that, but where did you get this from, Paul? And Paul begins to explain what a real mystery is. That when God gives direct revelation, that it's something that was always there but just couldn't be seen. We always read that Gentiles would get saved, right? We, we read that as part of Genesis in the Abrahamic covenant. We didn't read that in the Old Testament that the Gentiles would enter into the fullness of the promises that awaited every believer in, Christ, in, in, in God, Christ, that way. And that's what Paul's going to explain to us. It's, it's talking about access. It's talking about authority. He's going to describe his stewardship. Very, very powerful passage. Let's bow our heads and pray, and we'll come at this with an open heart. Father, I, I thank you that, Lord, you have made this simple. What was meant to confound the wise, you have made to the simple, Lord, so beautiful, a clear mystery to be understood. 
seen, revered by you, Jesus Christ. We are one in you, Lord. The depths that we get to pursue with you, Lord Jesus, you are in us, you work through us, and we are ever so grateful for your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray right now, anoint your word. Sow it into our hearts beautifully. Let there be no commentary of man here this morning. Let there be simple truth that we hang on to, Lord, as we too are stewards, just like the Apostle Paul was, of a good news, a news that everyone needs to hear. Lord, I pray for strength for the inner man inside of us and for the ladies, the inner woman. Strengthen us for the days ahead, Lord, whether they be one day or however many years, Lord. Strengthen us that we may be good stewards of your holy truth. So again, anoint your word here this morning. We know it's God-breathed, and we're ready to feast at your table, Lord. We ask this and pray this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. So everybody's tracking with me. You understand what we're going into in this section of chapter 2, really into chapter 3, okay? So let's look at verse 19. Now, he says, now therefore, so whenever I read that in scripture, I pray you do the same thing. It's a culminating verse. You step a verse back. For though him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So he's building on this, and he's been building on this, Jew and Gentile, that we've been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, death has been put, you know, is no longer a threat to us. Death has been destroyed from us, right? Not that we don't face a physical death, potentially, but he's saying spiritually, we live again. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. So now, therefore, and I think it's very important, he says, now, now that you understand all of that, now that you understand that theologically and doctrinally, and you understand this foundation, now I'm going to go th- and I'm going to explain why you're no longer a stranger or a foreigner. Now, therefore, you are no longer stranger and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Where's your citizenship? That's right. That's right. You're citizens of heaven. Before you were ever a citizen of America, yes, you might have been born in this country, but your allegiance ultimately belongs to God, and your citizenship is to God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's our identity. That's why we're blood-bought, because we belong to God. And it's nice to know that we're members. You're part of an exclusive club. The Born Again Club, the, the, the club of Jesus Christ, who loves you and who died for you. Saints, hagios, you know, in the Greek, that beautiful word. All of us, not what the Roman Catholic or other churches teach of some type of practice that you must go through to earn sainthood. When you receive Jesus Christ, you're a saint of the Lord. And that's what the scriptures teach. 
We're never to add or take away from the word of God. Let it be an anathema, as Paul said. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, do you understand that, that this isn't new? That this, this revelation, that everything we believe today, you have a long and beautiful pedigree. When you read Matthew or Luke, and you read right in the beginning, and you go through the chronology, and you, genealogy better said, and you look at the name, that's yours. That belongs to you. You're blood-bought. You're a child of God. He's given that to you. And there's no one's name. If we could see it today, it would be Ann Matthew, and Lisa, and Parker, Preston, Logan, Joshua, and, and it would just continue on and we're all in that genealogy. We belong to that. And you know what I love? It's a sordid mix, isn't it? I got Rahab the harlot. You know, I got Ruth. I, I got Moabah. I got idolaters. I got, you know, oh my, prostitutes. I got drunkards, tax collectors, thieves, murderers. But you know what they all have in common? They believe in God. They profess it and believe it in their heart. And they're born again. You see, that foundation, the prophets, all that was explained that have come to fulfillment. We today are living in a time like no other. We have seen more prophecy fulfilled. 27% of your Bible's prophecy. If we're not talking about prophecy at least once every other week, what are we talking about? It's, 30, it's almost a third of your Bible. How can you not talk about prophecy when you read scripture? We see this. We've been built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, that also gives us a good understanding. We don't see apostles today, do we? Because it was foundational. Apostleship's in office, right? Prophets. We, we see prophets today, but not in the office of a prophet, right? Maybe somebody's prophetic. They give you an encouraging word, and they exercise you know, the gift of prophecy, but that's not talking about the office as it was in times of old or the ancient times where that was the office they held, a prophet, Jeremiah, the prophet, right? Um, you, you understand. It, it, just like Paul was an apostle, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? Peter, apostles. Well, Mark, John Mark was really Peter, so, you know, he wrote, he had authored Peter, so forgive me there, but you get the point. It was an office. But once that foundation has been laid and the mystery has been revealed, which it has, we've been given all 66 books, we've been given our canon of scripture, there is nothing new. We shouldn't be looking for a, a new something. Everything's been fulfilled and given to us. Now we're watching prophecy continue to be fulfilled before us. But as you read in the book of Revelation, and also as we read in different scriptures, Jesus warned us about this. He said there would be nothing new that would be added onto scripture, right? There would be nothing new that would be given as a prophet, right? He said there are going to be others that come after my name. But he says do not follow them. He warned, right? I think of the prophet Muhammad as an example of that, right? as one that came after Christ but was not truly of the Lord and has led many people away into a false religion, into a false ideology, Islam, 
right? These are all important. These things have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. But there is nothing new that we have been given or will be given doctrinally, if I can say it that way, maybe more accurately. It's not that new things aren't being revealed. They are. I mean, we're seeing prophecy fulfilled. But I mean doctrinally, we're not getting new information. You, you guys with me on this? You understand? It's important because there's a lot of people standing up and saying, the Lord has given me something and nobody else has it, and I'm the only one that bears it, and we're the only church that has it, and you have to come to this church because we're the only one that has the, the truth. That's a cult. That's scary. Because yes, God leaves a remnant, but his word is truth. And anybody who opens their Bibles and reads the word of God is getting God's truth. So he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the what? Chief cornerstone in times of old or ancient. That meant the tip of the angle. That's what that actually means in the Greek. When people see chief cornerstone, it's talking the tip of the angle that it makes on that corner area where the, the, the cornerstone's presented. Anybody here try to ever um, build a wall or frame a wall or do something like that? What's one of the first things that you have to do? Or if you're laying a foundation, what's one of the first things you do when you lay a foundation? You have to do what? You have to find square, right? You have to square off something. You always have to find something to square off of. You can't just go square. No, you find something around you, right? Whether it's a curb or an object or something off of a, a schematic or something like that, and you square off that, assuming what? That that's square. What we're reading here is when you square off of anything that's not straight, what happens? Are you tr is it truly square? No, it's not. But when Jesus Christ is the tip of the angle. Now, I want you to think infinitesimal. I want you to think calculus again. Some of you took calculus. Remember? T limits. Infantaneous points. I want you to think about what we're talking about, the tip of an angle. How mathematically precise that is. That is saying infinitesimally, right, perfect, square. There is no deviation of error. We typically have a standard deviation or deviation of error of some amount whenever we measure something. There is no error. This is perfect. And when you align yourself with that foundation, that cornerstone, everything you do is going to line up righteously. That's what he's shown us. That's what he's told us. He's our chief cornerstone. Now you know why it's such a perfect example, because Jesus often spoke in parables and illustrations that in those days he could relate, as well as today, if anybody's a builder, they can relate to this. It was picture, word pictures for people to see and understand, to apprehend what he was trying to say, because they knew when they were trying to build a foundation or any time they were getting married. Remember back then when they would have marriages, and it was very common. Anytime somebody got married, what did they do? They took their father's house and they added a room onto it. So almost every man that had been married or would be married had to do what? Had to frame a room onto dad's house. All would have been very aware of the tip of the ankle and how important it was to get that cornerstone just right or to take that cornerstone and know the original cornerstone was set correctly. What happens when it's not? What happens when you work off of something that's 
inaccurate or a survey that's inaccurate? What happens when you square off of property lines that you think are accurate and it's off? What, what happens when that, everything that comes after that is what? That's right. It's off. It's worse. It's, you know, you put a shed and you, you have a five foot setback. You lay some string out. You go ahead and lay it out, right? Only to find out the property line that you were given wasn't accurate. What do you have to do? Move the shed. Do you see how everything comes after that? It's very, very important foundationally that we yield to the scriptures, not to man. God's truth, not to somebody who just stands up and says, I have something new for you. We test everything in the light of scripture and doctrine. So he says, look, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together Notice that God is doing that. Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He, he gave us a picture again of what he's doing right now. What he did when he died on the cross. That he was taking not the temple that they were used to, that was destroyed in AD 70, but he was taking a supernatural spiritual temple that he was gathering unto himself, and he's erecting it, and he's building it. And today that process is still going on, isn't it? We just had someone in the, in the fellowship, I think a week or two ago, get saved. And it's like every time somebody gets saved, guess what's happening? He's continuing, one, heaven celebrates, but two, it, it, the temple continues to be built because the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. And he says that we now are his living temple. And then he says, in the Lord, just in case you thought it somehow had something to do with you or me. It's in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That, that literally his plan is to dwell in you. Why? Why does he want to dwell in you? One, because you and Jesus are one. To be separated isn't in the programming. It's not in the software. It's not in the code. You were meant to be together with Jesus for all of eternity, and it doesn't start when you get in heaven. It started the day you said, I do. Remember, he's the bridegroom. We're the bride. He made the proposal. We received the proposal. I do. And when we said, I do, he came and lived inside of us and sealed us and is doing a work in us joining us closer and closer together. And he's not just doing that individually, he's doing that corporately. And not just here at Calvary Chapel, he's doing that around the whole world as he's gathering saints in the remnant and he's pulling together the beautiful working and temple of God. And when we get to heaven, we'll actually get to see it at the family reunion, at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we'll see all the bride has gathered and we'll look and we'll say, what are you doing here? No, we'll, <laughs> we'll be thankful that we made it. Huh? Amen, right? Look in your Bibles at John chapter 17, verse 23. I love how Jesus prayed. Have you ever just meditated on these scriptures when Jesus himself prayed? Jesus, uh, John chapter 17 verse, let's start at 20. John chapter 17, verse 20. 
I love this passage where Jesus prays for all believers. It, it gives us an idea of what he's doing all the time and how beautiful it is. And John chapter 17, verse 20, it says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe, those who will. That's speaking of what? Future, future tense. Those who will, that's you and I. That was you and I 2,000 years ago. I, guys, if it doesn't wreck your heart, if it doesn't break you, to know that your Lord and Savior is praying for you and that he desperately loves you. And 2,000 years ago when he was echoing this prayer for this very day, that you would be in his kingdom and that you would be knit together with him. If that doesn't tug at your heart, something's wrong with you. I mean, that's what he's done in us. He, he says that for those who will believe in me through this, their word, that they all may be one, do you see that? As you, Father, are in me and I in you. Look at how he relates it. He says, in the similar relationship as my Father, the Godhead, and Jesus Christ, the Son, God. He says, is that koine, is that special, tight, unbreakable relationship? He said, just like my Father in me and I in him, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that we may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Is that beautiful? Just think about what he's saying to you there. How he really loves you. And he's living in you now. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what are you waiting for? To know that the God of the universe, the God of everything, desires to live in you and fellowship with you? and love you completely, and you love him, and to be in such a beautiful relationship, a beautiful marriage that's unable to be separated from, that's what awaits us. The, the unbeliever, that's what awaits you. That's what has already been fulfilled in us as believers, right? What about 1 Peter 2? Go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 2. I love how First Peter, Peter references here and understands the idea between the stone, you know, the, the, the cornerstone again that we read. Um, Peter picks up on this again in First Peter chapter 2. If you look at verse 4, coming to him as a what? As to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also live, or you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. There we read it again. Um, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice he says spiritual sacrifices. He's not calling us back to ceremonial sacrifices where we're, we're carrying out the law. But now our sacrifices are spiritual. What does that mean? It means when we abstain and keep ourselves away from things that are not holy 
Those are sacrifices that we are making for the sake of Christ. By the way we live, by the things we do, by the way we speak, by the way we think. Those are all sacrifices. And our worship, our giving, our, our raising holy hands, our going out and helping uh, bread ministry, our, our, our you know helping hands, all the things the Lord does in your heart. You just meeting with a neighbor, talking with someone, a loved one on the phone, calling somebody and just encouraging them and you know pouring into them. Those are all for the namesake of Jesus Christ. If you're doing it with the right heart, this is what he's talking about here. A holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone. This is quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Elect, precious, and he who believes on him will no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Have you ever just sat alone with God? I don't know, some, some mornings, you know, I just get alone with God or at different parts of the times or the day and you just begin to weep. You just begin to weep when you're alone with Jesus. Just you and him and you and the Father. You just, because you know just how precious he is and how special and how wonderful he is. I love it when our, our, uh, our Bibles tell us that those who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, no. No. He's a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who have now, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And that's what he's doing. That's what we read here in verse 22 back in chapter 2 of Ephesians. That's what he's doing. He's fitting together, which grows into the holy temple of the Lord. That describes it. Chapter 3. For this reason, it's because that he's doing that, right? That, that's, it's because he's doing that work. For this reason, I, Paul, again, no question about authorship here, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Now, he's not throwing this in their face like saying, I'm here because of you. He's making it known. It was a fact, right? He was under house arrest in Rome because of missionary efforts, because he came back to Jerusalem to bring an offering, if you remember, to the church in Jerusalem. And then he turned around and he brought and escorted this Gentile into the area that was typically not off limits for Gentiles. But God had given Paul direct revelation that once you're a born-again believer in Christ, all the signs, all the, all the <laughs> warning, warning, danger, danger, you know, stay out if you're not a Jew... He says, you're, you're a child of God. Those don't apply to you anymore. You can press in as close to Jesus as you would like to and desire to. And he made, again, that awful clear when he, and I shouldn't use the word awful, he made that wonderfully clear when you saw the curtain in the temple torn in two. I mean, it's, it's a perfect picture. Again, he, look at all the way Jesus speaks to us in pictures. Don't miss any of them. Step back and sometimes just step back and think and meditate on those things. 
There's no coincidence. There's not a single jot or tittle in Scripture that was given that isn't, one, from authority, and two, to give us a picture, understanding, a hope, a confidence. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, he's in prison because of that, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which you were, by which when you read you may understand the knowledge, my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So he talks about a couple things here. He he it can be a little bit confusing if you're reading that. It's you know, dispensation. We don't walk around saying, well, my dispensation's getting heavy today, right? Well, what's that word mean? If you look, it typically means in Vine's expository dictionary as an example, it, it connotes or explains stewardship. We've all been given a stewardship. Paul was describing his. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship, now what was the stewardship that Paul was given? Do you remember? He's written about it in, well, we read about it in Galatians, right? We've, we've read about it even already in Ephesians. When he declared his you know, apostleship, authority from God. Do you remember in Corinthians what he said? And he says, I no longer, you know, through intellect preach. He says, I only preach one thing, Christ Jesus and him what? Crucified. So he, he began to turn away from the intellect and to just trust scripture. And so what was his stewardship? To fulfill the word of God by giving divine truth. That's what he did. That's what, that's what Paul's apostleship was. He, he recognized the calling that God had given him. It was a calling of grace, but he recognized the calling that God had given him to the Gentiles and that he was going to bring this divine truth to these Gentiles that they would realize that they are children of God. I want you to think about how significant this is. Remember Acts in chapter 15, 16, the Jerusalem Council? Do you remember this church, as well as a couple of the other churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, they were sitting back and literally biting their nails, sitting on their hands. There was much anxiety at that time because the Judaizers had come through that area, and what did they do? When the Judaizers came through, you're not saved. You're not saved. You, you don't keep the law. You haven't been circumcised. You know, he starts going, they start basically in these trips, and it's not till the Jerusalem Council. I mean, that, that began as early as AD 48. We know that in the earliest letter we have, which is Galatians. That was already happening. They were laying trips like that. And it's not until several years later, really towards the end of his second missionary journey, that he finally comes back to Jerusalem. He goes and he meets James. And prophetically, revelation is given. And he says, no, we were not going to add those things. Just keep from things that were sacrificed to idols, abstain from sexual immorality. He gave us two or three things there, right? But, but he didn't say, I want you to go and try to be just like, I want you to be a proselyte. You know what that is? That's someone that was converting to Judaism. He says, that's not what I'm looking for you to do. He says, I didn't come to do that. He says, my new covenant that I've already given you is better than the old. It's fulfilled. It's through Jesus Christ fulfilling the old covenant that he, he didn't come away to destroy it, but he came to fulfill it so that he, in fulfilling it, could give us his shed blood and pay an atonement for the fact that we couldn't fulfill it. We could never do it. 
And it's through that 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 we are given and we have come into this divine truth. We have, remember, at the time, they didn't have the New Testament the way we have it today. We, we have the full counsel of God, the full truth of God that way. So he says, if indeed, and I'm going to substitute word in here now that with our modern-day understanding, if you indeed had heard of the, or should I say modern-day vocabulary, not understanding, if you indeed had heard of the stewardship, right, of the grace of God, notice that, that it's God's grace, which was given to me for you to fulfill the work, the word of God, giving divine truth, only through supernatural divine truth, that Jew and Gentile together would be one body. That's what he's saying. How that by revelation, verse 3, he made known to me the mystery that, again, I've explained what that means. It's not the way we'd use mystery in the English today, but it's, it's a revealing of something that once was hidden, not able to be seen or apprehended. The Old Testament didn't speak of the fact that Jew and Gentile would become one believers, completed Jews, those born-again believing Jews, as well as born-again believers that are Gentiles, will become one body. He says that was not something that was revealed in times past, and you won't find that in your Old Testament. But Jesus revealed it to Paul, and Paul to the church at Ephesus, and to all of us today, that that's how it works, that there is no longer an Old Testament saying, a new, we're saints in Christ now. That's why he goes on in many places to say, whether you're, you're no longer Jew, you're no longer Gentile, you're no longer, you know, and he's not talking biologically, he's saying men or women. You know, he, he's explaining we're one in Christ. I want you to think, why did Paul, through almost every one of the Pauline letters, have to carry this message that Jesus Christ had given him to the church? Because it's the one attack spectrum that the enemy always begins with, and that's division. And he'll bring in division through any sorted way he can infighting, whatever. I mean, he, he's more than happy to have people focus on their disagreements rather than on the unity of Christ. And he already knew that. And so Paul, right out of the gate, is going back and saying, hey, we're one. Stop infighting. There's so much infighting within the church today. That's not my desire. My desire is unity. And that begins with submission to the Word of God, to the authority. Without authority, Without God's authority, without that submission to the Lord, remember we talked about the chief cornerstone? What tip of the ankle are you following then? And I think that's really important. We need to follow the one true God, the true tip of the ankle. And that's what Paul was drawing that out. That's why he was connecting that and laying the idea of a foundation and, and helping them understand that. How that by revelation has been made known to me the mystery, which I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the ministry of Christ. You may understand that I've been given this divine truth, which in other ages, that means in the past, Old Testament, was not made known to the sons of men, right? It was not given to the sons of men that way, right? Not in the Old Testament. Now, do you see in your Old Testament? So we need to clarify. We need to be Bereans. Do we see in the Old Testament where, where we're told that Gentiles would be saved? that Gentiles would be reached and that Gentiles would come to Christ? Or should I say where Gentiles would be saved that way? Yes, we did see that. 
right? Abrahamic covenant spoke of that. We do see that. We see that how the Gentiles would one day receive Isaiah and and other passages, other scriptures talk about that. No doubt about it. But did it ever say that we would be one? Or would it still be a Jewish proselyte where you would come and then fall under Judaism? If you were a Gentile as a foreigner and you converted to Judaism, then you became what? A Jew. But you weren't Christian, right? Now what he's saying is, no, I've, I've done away with that. He's saying now you come and Jew or Gentile, forget your ethnicity, when you're a born-again believer in Christ, you come into the church, the church, the temple of God, which lives in you. You are. That is your new citizenship, your new identity. That is who you are. You're a citizen of God, right, of heaven. And that's what he's trying to explain. And this, to us today, we don't necessarily have a hard time with that. Some of us in here may, but most of us won't. But to talk to a group of um, Jews or Hebrews, oh, that would have <laughs> wrangled a lot of feathers. They were, what do you mean? We're God's chosen people. We're sons of Abraham. We're, Abraham was our father. We were given the law. That's, today, that's still their national identity. And Jesus says, no. I'm your Messiah. It's through me that you come to Christ. Or to God the Father, excuse me. It's through me. He says, which is in other ages was not made known by the Spirit, right? Uh, to his holy apostles and prophets. Or sorry, I've skipped, uh, pardon me. Which was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to his holy apostles set apart and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his, pri- his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now, did you catch that? He said that we are now fellow heirs in the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That means all of the promises that were poured out through the new covenant apply to us today, born-again believers. The resurrection and his promise to resurrect you and I the fact that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He was speaking primarily to the Jewish audience, his apostles, when he said that before the ascension. But all of those promises apply to us today. That's how we know. You ever heard somebody say, well, no, that a promise isn't for you. Now, there are some things that are specifically for the Jewish people, right? God's got those in scriptures in the Old Testament. You read about those. We've got to be very careful not to interject replacement theology, which is where we try to have the church replace Israel. That's not what he's saying here. As a matter of fact, he's saying technically what Israel understands and the promises will be fulfilled, and when they are fulfilled, they're going to come into the new covenant, which we are already a part of, and together we'll be one body. So it's not that we're going that way. They're actually what? Coming this way. I would not lead off that in that in a evangelistic outreach. I would not start there with your Jewish brother or sister probably not going to be as well-received, right? You're better off starting in the commonality, God the Father, right? And you begin to, who is Jesus? Take him to Isaiah. But uh, you look at this, this is what he's saying. We're fellow heirs. You know, it's beautiful. This, is, this was a mystery. This was something, first time they heard this, revealed to them. Today, we, we sort of take it for granted. But have we actually thought about it? 
that when you run into somebody that's of Jewish origin or ethnicity, did you realize that that may be somebody that God is asking you, if you're faithful, to share the gospel of truth, to bring them into the family of God? Because we're what? One family in promise through Christ Jesus? It's not that they're just, oh, they're the Jewish people. They're covered. They were God's, they're God's chosen people. They're covered. They're good. No. That's not what he's saying. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs in the same body and partakers of his promise of Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister. He recognizes that word there is the minister is the word we use uh, where we get our word for deacon, right? What's a deacon? Table waiter. Where he became a servant. Deaconos, right? Where, where he became... Deaconos, you know, where he became a servant that way, a waiter. He, he said that he knew his calling, right? And his calling was, right back in verse 2, was what? Of the grace of God. According to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the affecting working of his power. Remember Acts chapter 19 when he's on the road to Damascus? Or 9, excuse me, Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, I meant to say. And he has that experience where he comes to Jesus Christ, or should I say Jesus Christ comes to him, and he's literally taken aback, the light, you know, he can't see, he's blinded, and he has that moment, and he says, who is the Lord? And then he prophesies, you know, the Lord tells him what awaits him, how he would go and he would witness to Gentiles, to to kings, to governors, and the suffering that he would suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Do we think about that? Read your gospel. What, what, how many people came to Christ? Lord, I'm ready. I want to do it. And then the suffering, you know, and, you know, or, or, well, no, I need to go do this first. So I have an inheritance first, or I have the, all these other things that were put before. I mean, we're all happy to sign on for salvation. But do we recognize that there's suffering as part of the Christian walk? You know, some of you know I haven't been feeling well for the last few weeks. Um, there's suffering. And it's not something we were to run away from. Sorrow, we don't run from it. Right? We, we, we have to ask Jesus, and, and look, I'm, I'm speaking to my own heart here. Lord, join me in this. Be in the middle of this with me. My wife is so gracious as a helpmate to say, let's not pray ourselves out of this. You want to go, what? What'd you just say? No. Jesus, we want to pray you into this. Let us learn. Let us grow deeper. And if this is the way you gather our attention, then what are we waiting for? And look, it's easy for me to stand up here and say that right now, and then I go cry like a baby in an hour or two from now because I'm, you know, pain everywhere through my body, and I'm, you know, what? But you know what? You all know about that. Every one of you have had suffering. You know what that's like. And what's it always produce? <clears throat> Come on, what's suffering produce in you? Well, it definitely produces perseverance. What else does it produce? It draws you to Jesus in a more intimate and deeper way. It produces closeness and intimacy. Just like in your, your marriages or your friendships, when you go through a difficult time with a friend or uh, a husband or a wife, 
and you come through it the other side and you know you come through it stronger you realize wow this the the, the armor's been tested and we come through it stronger together but you come through it with some what some some armor hanging off here or there and you know, if it's your husband or your wife, it's like Ecclesiastes chapter, you know, four and three and four. You know, what do you do? You, they're patching you up. You're patching them up. Okay, you know, you're, but you're together. You know, your friendships the same way. You build each other up, encourage each other. This is this is the calling. This is the calling. Paul's wrote about it. Wrote about it a number of times, but but it speaks to us that that we, you know, as ministers, it's a gift of grace given to him by the affecting work of his power. It's a stewardship. But I, I bring that up because I think today people don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want the suffering, but, but we need it. Verse 8, to me, who am less than the least of all of the saints. I mean, wow, to hear Paul say that, you know. This grace, <laughs> I just love the way he writes it. This grace, like almost like the grace, the definite article. This grace which was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see how it's compared to the greatest treasure and beyond the greatest treasure that lies in Jesus. And the word preach is to speak the good news. That's what he's saying, to speak the good news, that, that I get to do this. The Apostle Paul was like, pinch me. I'm in prison right now. I'm, I'm literally shackled to somebody for four hours at a time as they change rotations. They can't get away from me. I got a captive audience. Let me tell you about my friend, my Lord. Oh, I've heard about you, Paul. Are we I was warned about you. Well, this is a good account. And he would go in and they got saved. And they continue to get saved, and they get saved. Paul recognized that his suffering was actually an opportunity to preach the gospel. And that was his calling. Verse 9, And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, that means that all would now understand, which from the beginning of the ages had been hidden in God, which means this was always his plan, but the Old Testament saints and prophets didn't see it, who created all things through Jesus Christ, speaking to his cross. And there is something new in the new covenant then, isn't there? Of course there is, and there always has been. But we start to see just how much more is in that new covenant than we actually thought that he unified or united Jew and Gentile in that new covenant as one in Christ. That's what he's saying here. It was through Jesus Christ. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. Isn't that interesting? That the church has a responsibility, the body of Christ. That's what it means. It's not talking about a building that we have an accountability and authority and a responsibility to preach this same message, that believers in Christ are one, Jew or Gentile, and that if you're not a believer in Christ, what should you do? Invite them to be a believer in Christ so they can be part of the family, 
right? And he says this is very interesting, that it would be made known by the church to the who? Principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That means that even the angels and the angelic hosts didn't understand this. Principalities and powers are speaking to the angelic hosts. Look in your Bible to 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Did you ever do a study on angelology? I encourage you, if you haven't, um, do, do, a, do a study on angelology. It's, it's wonderful to realize there are angels all around us. Uh, and to think that if you read and you study angelology, you, you'll, <laughs> you know, systematically, it's called systematic theology when you study a particular topic. When you, when you do that, it's wonderful because you start to realize that they were created to one day be ministering to us, Right? And that one day we will actually be above the angels that way. Can you? I don't know. I have a sense. Of, I don't know. I have a sense of humor. I think about the angels, and they're like this guy, this knucklehead. You know, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna see my the archangel that's been with me this whole time. You know, and been assigned to me. Like you know, we know there are angels assigned over areas like uh, Israel. The archangel Michael it tells us in scriptures assigned over areas like Israel. You know, whatever angels assigned this area. You know. You, like, this is the guy you're going to, Lord, you're going to give me to, you know, and then I'm going to, you know, meet that angel one day, obviously in, in heaven or in the heavenlies, and <laughs> the stuff you put me through, why wouldn't you just listen? Why wouldn't you just do what the word said? Why did you have to do it your way? You know, and I'm so sorry, I had no idea. Did you know that day I had to step in front of that, you know, whatever, to block that from harming you and the only times, you know, I got rug burn over here. You know, I, I just, I, I think of these things because I, I don't know, I, sp I spend a lot of time with the Lord. I just, I think back and I think of the angels and I, and I'm thinking, Lord, these, <laughs> my poor archangel, you know, my poor, the angel that got assigned to me, right? The, he drew a, a, you know, he didn't get a good lot, you know. Uh, some of you might be thinking the same way sometimes, you know, but look at, um, uh, you could turn to First Peter 2 there. Uh, it's chapter 1, verse 12. I'm just going to find it. There it is. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering, which, sorry, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you, those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the things which, what? angels desire to look into. These are things that the angels weren't even aware of. It's kind of like the rapture. The angels don't know. The Son of God didn't know when he was here on earth. Only the Father knew. You know? There's that movie that came out, um, The Wrath, what is it? Before the Wrath. Some of you might have saw that. I just, you know, we watched it. And it, there's, it's really interesting. If you haven't seen that movie, it's a good watch. Uh, Before the Wrath, it's, it's not very long. It's about 30 minutes, more of a documentary kind of thing, maybe, maybe 45 minutes. But they go through and they compare the wedding covenant, the Galilean wedding covenant, um, marriage covenant. And the, we already been talking about how Jesus Christ uses pictures and how it follows beautifully as an illustration. And in a Galilean wedding... The father was the only one that would know when it was time for the son to go get the bride. 
not even the son. So he would prepare. He would do everything right. The woman would prepare, and the, the bride would have everything ready. They were already, you know, we would use the word engaged. They used, you know, different words back then, but they were already sort of together. They just had not consummated the marriage. So they would not see each other, but they were each doing their own things. It could last, you know, upwards a year. And then, you know, thinking about the oil and the Holy Spirit, as it speaks to in Scripture, how some were ready. Well, the, the, the bride and all the ladies that would be with her would sleep at the bride's house in preparation. And the whole town, right, the Galilee, like that, that area, they would be ready and watching and waiting. And the whole town would celebrate. And the friends of the guests of the wedding, they too would be ready. And the guy would come out and he would blow the shofar, you know, the big horn. And they would all come out and they would all go to the wedding to follow the procession to go get the bride. But the bridegroom, in this case, the husband, right, he would be in his house sleeping, and they all slept in a room. He had a separate room made for where he would one day go in with his bride, as he added to his father's house, but he would sleep in that same room, and the, I guess, the best man and all the different things as we would say them today, they would all sleep in that room, and then the father would be woken up by the Spirit of God, and he would go to his son and say, now go get your bride. And he would very joyfully and excited go and get his bride. And isn't that a bit beautiful picture of the rapture? That when, they, when the disciples asked and Jesus said, see, there's mysteries that have been revealed to us for us to understand, for us to see. But to think about that even the angels don't know about these things or certain things, like this idea that the Jew and the Gentile would become one if, as believers in Christ. They're watching it, you know, unfold as, uh, from the cross. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can also look at, like, Luke chapter 16, verse 22, if you want to also see other scriptures talking about angels looking on. Do you know the scriptures teach that it's an angel that will actually escort you if you should die before the rapture? It's the angels that escort you to heaven. And then you're face-to-face with Jesus. The Bible teaches that. Did you, did you know that? In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him, speaking of the unity. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you. Don't lose heart at my sufferings for you, which is your glory. Through arrest. And all this, he, was, he says, don't get discouraged by my arrest, by everything that's going on. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what's bowed their knees to the Father? Jesus. Go to Luke chapter 22. Look at verse 41. there? If you look at Luke chapter 16, well, sorry, I, I want to kind of go back to 16, but Luke twenty-two forty-one, we can see that it says what? 
And he was withdrawn from them, speaking of Jesus, when he was in the garden. Right? And what does it say he does? And he knelt down and prayed. We actually see Jesus doing that. Now, look, if you can't kneel down and pray, is God going to get angry with you? No. You know what he wants? He wants a bent heart. That's what he wants. He wants a bent heart. But I think of James, camel knees, right? That's what he's calling because he spent so much time on his knees, the arthritis and everything else, you know? His knees swell up so bad that he could barely walk. The half-brother of Jesus as it became clear to him after Jesus ascended and everything from the resurrection, I, I lived with him for <laughs> how many years? You know, I can't think of one thing my big bro did mean to me. Some of you big brothers, right? My big brother is good to me as he thought of Jesus. Okay, think about that, what it would have been like to grow up in a house. Everybody would be the black sheep, right? <laughs> Jesus is always the first, you know. I know, Mom, be like Jesus. I got it. Why can't you be more like Jesus, son? You know. But I don't think that was actually done. I don't think he would have allowed that. I think he would have done everything he could to help his brothers. Because he, he really didn't draw attention to himself other than he wanted to draw attention to the Father, to the will of the Father. And the Holy Spirit confesses Jesus. Jesus confesses the Father. While we're over here, remember I was mentioning about the angels? Just look at, since we're over here, just look at Luke chapter 16, verse 22. And this speaks of uh, Abraham's bosom. I actually mentioned it earlier. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. But it's a good area just to see uh, angelology. Can we get a few minutes? So it was when the beggar died, verse 22 of chapter 16, and was carried by who? The angels to the place where the Old Testament saints went, Abraham's bosom, right? This rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. I wish I could go in to teach all of this right now with you, but I think many of you have read it, if not read the passage again. But it helps us to understand. And again, you could pick up the book in the other room. It's a short little book. It's, it's a quick read. But it explains the difference between the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. You know, that we go directly to be in heaven with the Father. Although, technically, if somebody said, hey, wait a minute, is that your final resting place, your final abode? What would be the right answer? No, because we're going to have a new heavens, right, that we will ultimately have as our final, the new city that will be built. But you're not wrong if you say I'm going to heaven. Yes, you are right. But there, there will be a new heavens that you will ultimately after we come down for the thousand-year millennial reign, you will ultimately reign with Christ and serve and minister. Well, you could turn back to Ephesians. Don't you love when the Lord just strings pearls? We end up going all the... I mean, we just keep going on and on and on, right? If we only had another couple hours, what we could just, just pull from the Lord, what he's giving us. So, he, he, you know, they begin to understand this, this boldness, so he says, according to the eternal purpose, which is accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access. Please underline both of those, because that's what you have, and that's what this was for by Jesus. 
confidence through faith in him, unity. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for which is your glory. For this reason, I now bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened, that's a good thing this morning, with might through his spirit in the inner man. Notice he doesn't say the physical body. It speaks to an inner man here. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Uh, you can look again at, or I'll just turn to John 14, 28. Allow me to do that one moment just for time's sake. And You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you might believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the rules, the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. That's what we're experiencing today. God went, Jesus went to prepare a place for us. That's, and the ruler of this world, who is the prince of the air, who is Lucifer, the devil, right? That's why things are going the way they are today. That's why you're seeing evil being called good. Isaiah 5, it's the fulfillment of prophecy. Um, evil being called good and good being called evil. We're watching it fulfilled before our very eyes. We're watching governments stand up and say, no, this is good, when it's absolutely evil. And we really haven't seen that in times past. Governments um, didn't acknowledge or the truth wasn't so fluid. There is no such thing as fluid truth. But if you believe what's going on in our government today, we're told, I mean, one moment, though, they're telling us don't wear a mask because it's really bad. I mean, have you ever watched that Fauci clip? It's really unhealthy for you. And the next minute, they're saying, well, everybody better wear a mask. How do you know what's truth? I mean, if you're just the average layperson, you don't have the word of God, how do you know what to believe? I mean, think about the anxiety that must be raging in the hearts and minds, I'm certainly, it can even happen in us as believers, but in the hearts and minds of this lost and dying world, they need help. They need comfort. They need Jesus Christ. Not, not just, yes, ultimately for eternity and, and, and for salvation, but without Christ, they're not going to survive. Their hearts are going to be broken. Did you, did you notice that the uptick, and I, I look at all kinds of data. Recently, they call it heartbroken syndrome. Have you ever heard of that, heartbroken syndrome? Have you ever heard of when a loved one, very close, long marriage, 50, 60 years, they've lived together, they're very tight in their marriage, beautiful. Uh, one naturally passes, and then within hours or days, the other spouse just naturally passes. And when asked, what did they die from? broken heart. See, I see God's love in that. That's a real perfect love that your life could cease because you love like Christ. Because this earth holds nothing and you begin to realize where home really is, where your peace is, where your joy is. It doesn't mean you're an escapist and you get to turn around and just, well, I'm just going to put myself in a silo. No, there's work to be done. There's work to be done here. As long as God gives us the strength to do it, we're to do it. But boy, 
the uptick of heartbroken syndrome, all-time high right now. People are going in the hospital and they're dying of broken hearts. Do you know why? Because every man's been given a measure of faith and they can't reconcile what they're seeing and the evil and the uncertainty and all that's going on around them. And it's making them sick. And rather than turning to Christ, who is our hope and our strength, they don't have anywhere to turn because they're trusting in their intellect. And you know what it's literally doing? It's literally destroying them. Their own heart is betraying them because they won't profess and place their trust in Jesus. How do you know when you're going to have that opportunity to speak to that one last person that days from now could be that soul? Please invest in one another. I plead, I beg you, invest one to another. Don't just come here and punch a ticket. Don't just come here and warm a seat. You're being equipped for the work of the ministry. Act like it. Behave like it. And that's a word for me, too. I need to act like it. I need to behave like it. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height. He says that we can understand it. We can understand and measure God's love. We just don't use a rubric like uh, many people would use today. We use, a, you know, what kind of rubric do you use to measure the love of Christ? It's unsearchable. It's, it's not, you know, it's possibly measured, but man, to know, kenosko, to understand the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that great that you can know and I can know? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. I, I love Paul's language here. Many, many times this is misquoted for just preach it, name it, claim it, and all that. You know, wait a minute. No, God is able to do these things. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. That's Paul's language, by the way. There is no other Greek context for that anywhere syntax within your scripture. He got something from direct revelation. He made up a word. They, this is a combination of words that you don't find combined anywhere else within the Greek or even in other uh, readings that you'll read from Greek literature. So the Lord had to give him this exceedingly abundantly, just so we got the clue of exactly what, what's going on here, above all that we ask or think. I mean, that's what Jesus can do. Exceedingly abundantly. Anything you could think, Jesus can do it. Anything you ask, you can do it. According to the power that what? Works in where? In us. Jesus works in us. According to the power he manifests in us. To him be glory. Isn't that the right response? In the church, by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's a good place to stop. Most powerful words, some of the most powerful words you're going to read in all of Scripture right before you. Let's have the worship team come up, the musicians. We'll have a closing song. Friends, I, I want you to start living like the last, this, this 24 hours could be the last 24 hours of your life. I want you to live with that kind of intent. 
that every word you speak, you make them count, that everything you put, that God puts before you, you take advantage of, the see in it. There is no guarantee. I'm not trying to frighten you. Time is short. God is coming. He promised it. And if we believe that, we need to live like it. And I know that means some of us are going to have to make some changes. And I know that means we're going to have to make changes in our lives. We're going to count the cost. But I promise you, and more importantly, God promise you, there's nothing he won't give you 10 plus fold in the kingdom of God for anything that you're willing to surrender in this life that could be distracting you. There's nothing. There's nothing that you're going to hold on in the temporal that the eternal won't immensely satisfy. Let's stand if we can, if you're able, stand. Let's worship. Time is short. There is no coincidence. Be ready to proclaim the faith and the reason you believe what you believe and the hope that lies within you. A resounding amen? Amen. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.